Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So I am very excited about the guests that we have today. You know, they recently closed a pretty significant uh, round of financing earlier this year. Uh, but I think that you're all going to find his journey, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. So again, building, scaling, financing, all the good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome Matt Dana. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So born in Massachusetts, Matt. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? It was cozy, I'd say. It, Massachusetts, I was in central Massachusetts in like a super suburban area. So uh, it, was, it was definitely a, a different type of growing up environment than kind of here in LA where I'm based now. So then in your case, you know, like obviously you started, you know, it was kind of like a different path because you went into human computer interaction then product you know now a founder so what 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 was that shift there i mean what got you into you know computers to begin with yeah it's a good question my whole background i've kind of oscillated between 
being technical and also being creative. Uh, I liked, uh, got into tech because I was building websites in like high school and, and it was around the days of you know, MySpace and, and what have you. And I just found it really, really powerful that I could write some code and it would be instantly accessible by others. Uh, and I, it was, it was super powerful. Uh, and I liked that it also acquired some level of creativity with the web design and all that kind of stuff. So I always kind of straddled the two worlds, the left brain and the right brain uh, kind of thinking. And, uh, you know, come college, uh, I was trying to really figure out, do I go for graphic design or do I go for software engineering? And ended up uh, going for software engineering, but focused on human-computer interaction. This was in uh, Rochester, New York, at RIT. And that was a really awesome uh, place for me to land. Uh, and you know, human-computer interaction is all about how people use technology uh, and uh, different behaviors and uh, the psychology behind everything. And so it was the kind of hit on both of the areas that I was uh, interested in and you know, the natural path forward to that is to eventually get into product. Got it. So then, so then let's talk about getting into product because, you know, for you, you did, you know, uh, quite a bit, you know, on the product side of things, you know, you did a couple of stints before like actually going at it, you know, on your own and building, you know, mm -hmm. the company that you're in now, which we're going to be talking about it just a little bit, but, but how was that, you know, venturing to product and, and how would you say that that has unfolded and, and shape up the way that you think about building something that people want to use. Yeah, absolutely. Product is really fun. It's the convergence of uh, many different functions. And I love the you know, empowerment of you know, a lot of folks describe it as you know, product managers being like the mini CEO of, of, of a certain product. And I wouldn't describe it that way, but there is definitely a lot of empowerment uh, tied to the role. And you have objectives and you have to think about it as a, as a business uh, decision maker. And so product was just really, really fun. Stake, managing stakeholders, um, you know, getting the teams all work together, communicating out the progress, figuring out what we should go build next. All of that was really, really fun. Uh, and so it, it, it felt uh, really natural for me. Because in your case, I mean, you were in, in, in DeviantArt for about six years and then you did full screen for about a year, a year, I mean, two years, almost three years. But, but in, in, in this case for you, I mean, what was that transition like? And, 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 and on both, you were on the product side. So what did you learn from both, you know, that perhaps, you know, shaped your perspective and the way that you thought about building products? Yeah. So I think as part of the natural product management career ladder, you know, start by building features, and then you build products. And then if you go into the management track, which I ended up uh, kind of falling into, uh, end up building the team that's building a portfolio of products. And I think the way that you build product today is, is, is remarkably similar to actually how you build a team. Uh, and so a lot of the work that I do today with you know, building the company, it feels like I'm doing product management again. Uh, it's all about what's the, the right strategy. Do I have the right kind of team and resourcing? Uh, and how are we providing the most value to your customers? And so it, it, it's kind of a natural extension, I think, of, of being a uh, starting my career and as a product manager. Now, for you, I mean, after being in full screen and, 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 and really 
I mean, you were unemployed up until, point, up until a point of, of, of this company. So eventually, you know, like you really come up with the idea of dropping that and becoming a consultant, which was your immediate step towards becoming a founder. So how was that transition like from employee to consultant to founder? Yeah, absolutely. We did consulting while we were working on Boulevard. Uh, and so that was helping pay the bills. So we were consulting three days a week and then working on Boulevard the rest of the, and other, all, you know, nights, weekends, as well as the other four days of the week. Uh, and it was, it was really fun. I think it was a good way to, uh, to step into a company and helped us, you know, ultimately we ended up bootstrapping for about the first two years of our business with some friends and family. And so it wasn't like, I'm going to go found a company and then uh, I'm going to raise lots of venture capital right out of the gate. Like that, we didn't take that path. Uh, and we wanted to show that, you know, we had product market fit, that we were able to uh, monetize uh, properly. And, and ultimately that's when we started to get down the venture path. Now, the, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Boulevard? How do you guys make money? Yeah, absolutely. So we make money through software fees, so subscription licenses. And then we are also a, uh, a payment facilitator. Uh, and so about 60% of our revenue today do, does come from merchant processing. Uh, and uh, you know, payment facilitator is basically the same thing as Stripe and Square, where you're the merchant of record uh, and you can provide a really incredible value to your customer base by having integrated payments. Now, in your case, I mean, the bootstrapping that you were alluding to, I mean, that's not easy. You know, it's like you're like uh, walking through a very thin rope and any mm -hmm. any movement in the wrong direction could be catastrophic. So how was that bootstrapping? Because now you guys are venture backed. I mean, you have more money than what you need. But but at that point, I mean, I'm sure it was not easy. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. Uh, we liquidated Sean and I, my co-founder, Sean, who's our CTO, uh, we liquidated our 401ks. Uh, we spent all of our savings. Like we were all in on this company. And uh, I think it was really helpful. Uh, like it, it gave us this, uh, you know, urgency uh, to prove product market fit and to get adoption. Uh, and then I think also being a bootstrap company, you're looking at every cent that goes, you know, through the business and looking at profitability and, you know, every time you run payroll, it's painful. Uh, and so, so you're forced to, to move quick and, uh, we moved as, as quick as possible. Uh, one of the challenges in our category is that we had a lot to build in order to break into the market because 85% of our customers come from a different solution. And so we had to build to feature parity with, uh, what the leaders in the current market had in order to displace them and have customers come over to us. So we had a lot of upfront building in order to, to get this company to be successful, show real traction. Now, at what point, because you said that you were for, for the first three years bootstrapping, at what point do you realize, hey, maybe it makes sense to, to get some money for this and, and, and raise some capital? I think as soon as we had our initial customers on the platform. And so we, we were getting like lots of, requests of like, oh, could Boulevard do this or could it do this? And so like, it felt like the product was being pulled out of us that we didn't even have to write the roadmap ourselves that our customers were kind of writing it for us. And it just felt that it was time to move faster, 
build up a little bit of a team uh, and, and go bigger. And that's when we start to think about venture capital. And how did you position this towards uh, VCs? Because, I mean, the the industry that you're serving, the market, you know, perhaps, you know, not being worth a betting on. I mean, that kind of stuff. Like, how were you able to package things in a way that would address these types of concerns of these people? Absolutely. So you know, this industry that we're in, uh, you know, small businesses, personal care and beauty, uh, it's, it's hard because most investors are male. And we're betting on a space that, you know, is catered more to females and definitely growing in demand from men uh, consumers as well, male consumers. So we had to evangelize on on multiple fronts. So we had to evangelize that, one, this industry is growing. It's already massive, but it's still early in its kind of in its maturity. And there's certain sub-segments of the industry that are growing at really incredible rates. Uh, and we also had to evangelize that you can sell the customers, the, the buyers in the market, you could sell them a software solution that they would pay for. Uh, and so had to evangelize that like it's essentially a, a viable business um, and that we were going to be successful. And then... Uh, the last one was that we had to evangelize that we were going to win against a highly fragmented market. And again, with uh, we have a lot, a lot of competitors. There's some, some of our competitors have started before I was born. And they've had a, many, many years to, to build a lot of functionality into their solutions. And so we had a big third entry, but once we were able to land our customers, uh, they were with us. And uh, and our customer retention was one of the things that really spoke to investors in the earliest days. Uh, it's categorically top quartile. And that really spoke and is super abnormal. Like it defied patterns for SMB, B2B software businesses. And what what was the uh, what was the process? I mean, because up until now, how much capital have you guys raised to date, Matt? We raised over hundred million dollars. Super grateful to be able to say that. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, the last one, you know, pretty pretty big round that you guys did with Point Seventy Two uh, earlier this year. So yeah. that was that was a serious C of seventy million. But what what has been the experience of going from one financing cycle to the next? Because obviously, here as you were saying, three years of bootstrapping, then. All of a sudden, you guys activate the venture, you know, route. And then what has been, you know, that experience of going from one financing cycle to the next? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the earliest days, you know, you're still doing a lot of product discovery, a lot of customer discovery. For us, we were like we started in hair salons, but then we were expanding to adjacent verticals. So barbershops, nail salons, um, med spas, you name it. And so it's still you know, the seed and series A are still very early um, for a company's, uh, you know, maturity stage. And series B is kind of when you have to really prove the unit economics. And then series C, I like to think of as like, it's time to scale. You have to prove that you can scale, uh, unlock operational leverage, that you can, you know, that your margin and some of like your customer acquisition costs and CAC to LTV, like that all these things are unlocked. Uh, and that's, it's kind of the, the make or break phase of, I think, a startup's, uh, journey is, can you go and be, you know, uh, a startup that is able to 
generate hundreds of millions of dollars of ARR per year? Or are you going to be the startup that is, you know, more on just you cap out at 50 million of ARR? So this, that's kind of the phase that we're in is to really show that we're on the, the former track. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, uh, when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing, like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur, whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions. And also you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it, I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime, and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Anything that you've learned there on, on running a fundraising process or what to look for in investors and how to do that? Because, I mean, obviously after having done all these different rounds, you know, I'm sure that you've been able to learn a lot from all those different interactions from prospects and also from the people that ended up investing. Absolutely. I think you really need to go into it with an understanding of what kind of partner do you want? Uh, and I was the type, you know, being a first time founder, I was the type that wanted for my investor to be hands on uh, and to help guide me and to advise me and to be able to be available for a call on a random Thursday to talk about strategy or a candidate that I wanted to hire. And uh, and so we were 
uncompromising with that kind of profile. Uh, we have been really fortunate to be able to work with top-notch investors uh, that have proven to be uh, like incredible supporters. And uh, we wouldn't be where, obviously, where we're at today without them, um, you know, in capital side. It's just the individuals. And so I think there's this philosophy with some founders that, you know, they just want the check. They don't care about any value add. Uh, and I took, I have a different philosophy that I think you should be able to maximize uh, the total value of a partner that you're bringing in and to uh, take advantage of that. And uh, it's worked well for us. And typically, like when you're thinking about value of an investor, I mean, be beyond the money, how do you look at that value? What is the way to to filter through the noise and to really see what people can contribute and how they can contribute that value? Yeah. And I, again, the the prerequisite kind of table stakes is that you want to work with this person for a very long time, right? Like I forget what, how long an average comp startup takes to go public, but it's of the up like time frame of a decade or more. And so this person is going to be with you forever. Uh, and it's, it's nearly impossible to, to break ties with them. It's so much easier to get a divorce than it is to, to change an investor. Uh, and so table stakes is you got to like the person a lot and trust the person. Uh, secondly, there's obviously the, the capital that comes with it. Um, and that's, that's obvious, but is it capital that will attract future capital, right? Is, is the signal of the venture fund and the, especially the partner at that fund, are they reputable? Do they have great deals, have a track record of success? Uh, because that actually matters a great deal as to, for future rounds. Uh, and then I think that the other aspect is, Will the fund that you choose also help with talent? Can in in some ways, and I, I actually found this pretty frustrating as a as a bootstrap founder. But we weren't taken seriously as a as a business when we were bootstrapped. Uh, it wasn't until we raised venture capital where people started you know, looking at us as like not just a side project, but like a legitimate business. And it's probably frustrating for any bootstrap founders that are are listening into this call and can probably uh, relate to what I, my perspective there, but. Uh, you know, being able to have, you know, the stamps of the, the venture capital firms logos, you know, on your about us page and career site, uh, that definitely is a, a point of validation for talent that are, that's seeking, you know, high performance and, um, growth startup. And, 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 and now that we're talking about, you know, the business and building the business, they obviously the perception and all that stuff, but what about building vertical software? So, so how do you go about doing that and, and what can you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So vertical software is very different than horizontal software. Horizontal being software that is sold into all types of industries. So you could think of any of like project management tools and, uh, and, and pro programs like that where, you know, expenses and, and finance, um, some fintech, like they, it doesn't matter which vertical the business that you're selling to operates in, the value of the software still applies. For vertical software, it's about picking a specific buyer type, a single profile and going extremely deep with them. And so it's not about like how wide 
of a profile of customer base that you're looking to target. It's about how much value can you provide and go super, super deep. And so vertical software, you know, there's many different dimensions of growth, uh, but we like to think about it in four different dimensions. There's kind of which sub-verticals do we operate in within the general kind of umbrella of beauty and personal care. Uh, there's what size of business. So in the entire market, there's everything from sole proprietors, which is a business of a single individual all the way up through enterprise businesses. So it's figuring out like, which is the right type of segment that you really want to target where you can get the unit economics that you're looking for uh, and be really, really deliberate about that. And then once you figure out the verticals and kind of the size of a business that you're looking for, it's like, looking at their needs and then what's the feature set is the third dimension of growth. Um, and you can start with just a single SKU, a single product and sell that in. Uh, and I would suggest just starting with one, uh, make sure you uh, nail it before scaling it. Uh, and then with vertical software, there's an incredible opportunity because you already have them and you can start layering in more and more features, more and more products, upsells, add-ons uh, and then like they're with you and you can grow your contract size significantly over time, even if like the business itself stays, you know, fixed in terms of size. And then the fourth one is just a uh, geo, right? Like which markets are you operating in? And so I like to encourage founders to be extremely, extremely focused uh, in the earliest days, especially if it's vertical software, you have to be very deliberate and really focus on a single ideal customer profile. And then over time you can expand that ideal customer profile. So it's kind of like starting with a store and then you build it into a mall kind of thing, no? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And and I guess like to that point, like how do you think about, you know, starting small like that with one single customer profile and then how does that, you know, grow or expand over time and how do you know it's time to expand? I'm sure that you guys have, have seen that very, very well with your business. Yeah, absolutely. We started to see you know significant amount of uh, demand from businesses that had multi location and so in the earliest days of our of our company when we were still in kind of product discovery and problem discovery really uh we were we knew that we needed to support multi location businesses and so from the the get go we built our our technology to support and really cater to multi location businesses where uh you know, depending on how many locations, like all of their information and data rolls up in a really, really nice brand level view. Uh, and we knew that was something that would be super differentiated. Uh, but we didn't start selling into those out of the gate. We started selling just into the, the single locations uh, where they had a front desk, where our scheduling solution would provide a lot, a lot of value, save a ton of time and overhead and great, give a, a fantastic experience to clients. And so it started you know, single locations and it started growing from there. And it kind of happened naturally. Like we signed up one location and then they had a sister location that uh, we then signed up. And so they were our first multi-location business. And and then from there, it just kind of snowballed. Now, in this case, you know, imagine, you know, and, and I guess before I ask you this question, I want to, you know, for the people that are listening to, to, to get really a sense of the scope and size of Boulevard today. I mean, anything that you can share in terms of, um, you know, number of employees or anything else that, you know, you feel comfortable sharing to get an idea on the size of the business today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we have about 225 folks on the team. Uh, and we've been following the kind of growth trajectory of the the triple, 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 double 
double, double, double for as long as you can double. Um, and so we're in the first year of, of having sig- truly significant scale, and, and this will be our first doubling year. Uh, and so that's where you know Series C comes into play. And it's all about this kind of scale at this point. And in terms of uh, you know, kind of size of customer base, we work with about uh, 2,000, uh, more than 2,000 uh, businesses. Uh, and uh, for us, it, it, that might sound like a small size if you're a horizontal solution uh, where you need a lot, a lot of customers. But for us, we have a very healthy uh, customer value per logo uh, and especially given payments. And so we're all about, you know, kind of quality of the logos as opposed to quantity. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Matt, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Boulevard is fully realized. What does that world look like? My co-founder and I, we, we set out to really solve a consumer problem. Like him and I, we don't come from the beauty industry. We weren't hairstylists. Uh, we weren't barbers. And so we, we wanted to make it convenient to be a client of these businesses without having to make phone calls where you had you know, reminders about when to come in. You were able to find uh, the right uh, service provider for you. Um, and we just found that that was missing in the world, that there isn't an app on everyone's phone that they can go and use to look and feel their best. And we wanted to create that. So we started building that. Uh, we were trying to build an open table for appointments. And we realized we had nothing to put in that marketplace. Like there was no supply. Uh, there's in our market, it's a lot of legacy software. There aren't APIs, uh, especially not open APIs, um, a lot of desktop software. And so we, we, there was no way to get access to the calendars of these businesses. And so we decided, I think like three or four days into after we had written our first line of code on this, for this marketplace, we had pivoted to let's go and do B2B. Uh, let's sign up these accounts, get direct access to their calendars and, and start helping them be more successful and sustainable businesses. And then in the future, it gives us the opportunity to be a consumer brand where we can uh, surface availabilities across all of our businesses. Um, and so we're still very much in the B2B camp. Um, but we've always built with an eye towards eventually someday being a consumer brand. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. Maybe I bring you back, you know, to that moment where you had uh, left your last job and you were now like uh, doing the consulting, you know, like figuring out, you know, what was going to be, you know, the company that you that you wanted to build. And, and you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and, and most importantly, giving that younger self, that younger Matt, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say trust your gut. Uh, for the longest time, uh, I was very unsure of many decisions for the business. Uh, like, I'm a product guy. Like, I've never operated a, a real business and had you know, people's paychecks and income dependent on some of the decisions I make. Uh, and you know, I spend a ton of time, you know, reading blogs and, and talking to other founders to really try to learn as, all of this as, as quickly as possible. There's still many, many decisions I was uncertain. Uh, and I think over time, I've just learned to, to trust my gut. And that even if I, uh, that very few people um, actually makes 
you know, decisions like I make on a daily basis, many, very few people like actually have very, very high confidence on some of those decisions. Um, and so you just got to trust yourself, trust the information you have, try to gather as much data and then uh, make decisions that way. So I think I'd go and tell my, my younger self, trust yourself more. I love it. I love it. Now, just as an example, has there been like, if, if you could now reflect, what has been a moment where you really trusted yourself and then you're like, wow, I'm so glad that I did. If you were to look back on this journey with Boulevard. Yeah, I think there was a defining moment, which was during COVID. So our industry, you know, like the the restaurant space and everything was was really destroyed during during COVID. And so we had just raised our Series B and we were like freaking out. Like our businesses were shut down full stop. Like we're a fintech company. They weren't doing payments uh, at all for like the first couple months of COVID. We're like, is this the end of our business? Um, luckily, we had like closed our Series B the week of the Los Angeles uh, County like shutdowns where all businesses were mandated to, to close. So we were well capitalized going into COVID, uh, thank God. Uh, and a few months in, you know, volume was starting to pick back up, you know, in the 30, 30%, 40% of what it used to be. Um, but it was the 4th of July weekend uh, of uh, the first 4th of July in COVID. And I, after that, I, I had this like, kind of realization that we should gun it. And we, I made a proposal to the board um, that the following week, uh, asking to spend more uh, than what we had in our fiscal plan, and to add two more engineering teams, uh, little engineering squads, so that we could move even faster. While all of our competitors were doing layoffs uh, and slashing their support teams and everything, we decided to to increase our velocity, and that was probably one of the better decisions that we've made uh we end up like that year even through COVID, like we we tripled uh and a lot of it was because we chose to to gun it and again that kind of comes back to the trusting your gut i love it now for the people that are listening matt what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi yeah absolutely you can find me on linkedin on twitter it's matt dana on on both uh platforms and also, uh, on our, we have a, our, obviously our website, joinblvd.com, uh, and there's a blog and all that kind of stuff. And you know, we're always hiring. Uh, so, you know, love to talk to anyone who's interested. Amazing. Well, Matt, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.